This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Josh Nicholas. Uh, one of my friends actually, uh, I'm going to drop name now. She she is actually the, the director of user experience at Google, okay, in 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 uh, in California. And last week she wrote on on Facebook that her devices can she can't use the devices because she's lost her voice. She had a cold, you know, because all her devices are, are, are voice activated and voice enabled. So you can see, you know, well, we haven't thought about that. And <laughs> that was a really interesting problem that, that she started to have. So this is Dr. Tuck Wileong. He's a researcher on human-computer interaction at the University of Technology, Sydney. And the friend he's talking about has a house where almost everything is voice activated. She can talk to her house and tell it to turn on the lights or the air conditioner, pop on some music or maybe order some dinner. All by saying, hey house, can you do this for me? This might sound weird or futuristic, like something out of the Jetsons. But it's actually happening already and is probably going to be the next wave of computing. But you can probably already see the huge flaw there. If you control everything with your voice and you become sick, what happens when nothing can understand you? This is bad design. It's a bunch of engineers getting really carried away with some cool technology, but forgetting about the person. That we don't sound the exact same way every time we talk. I think as a designer, you have to think very carefully about who is using it, where they're using it, and what they're using it for. So it, we, we saw that when, when people just translated um, documents from, from uh, actual physical documents to the web, okay? Yeah. It just didn't work because what you have to do is look at the medium that you're working with, look at what the technology affords you in that particular medium, and work around that medium. So that's what design means to Tuck. It's about figuring out what it is that people are doing, where they are doing it, and using technology to fill in the gap. Unlike the lady's house from before, good technology design always thinks about the human and puts their needs first. This idea is actually pretty new. Go back to the first computers even a couple of decades ago, and it's like they didn't even know humans existed. All of this can be fed into the computer through these magnetic tapes at a rate of 12,000 numbers or letters per second. The first computers were like large calculators, and they were huge, the size of rooms, with whirring pistons and rotating spindles. And the people who made them, and the people who used them, they weren't really like the rest of us. 2,000 mathematical calculations per second. Now, here is where we get the answers. You might call it the uh, voice of Univac. Actually, it's a high-speed printer that prints results. The first computers were, were designed um, you know, and, and with very little power and, and, and computational power, and, and they were housed in this huge room, you know, this big cabinet that fills a room and, and air condition, and, and one person with a lab coat walks around and... and, and you know, punching problems. That's yeah. right. You know, so you see that in, in, in sort of old science fiction movies, and, and it is indeed that. And and the person has very has a small little 
interface, basically like a, a little screen that they can actually just enter stuff or they would feed in code through a punch card. Yeah. Um, but they were only used by one person and, and managing this whole computer. And it was for very, very specific purpose of, of crunching numbers to do something, either to break code, you know, uh, during World War Two, you know, so that that was the idea of the computer um, that came from there because how can we make this kind of analyzing code, analyzing, um, try to break something code um, a lot quicker. So some sort of machine that can do a lot of the, the grunt work for us. And so that, there was that. And, and the user was actually that person who is highly trained, who knows exactly what to do with it. Mm. And no other person would, would probably know much more about that. But slowly, computer companies realized that computers had to be friendlier. They couldn't be these gigantic machines that only someone with a lab coat, a spanner, and a computer science degree could use. So they started trying to figure out what we humans actually want in a computer. I, I think if you want to talk about when, when computers started to become, uh, when designers of computers start thinking about, oh, it needs to be more human, or think about people, I, I think um, the celebrated case was actually when, when, when Apple first came up with this yeah. It with was first Apple and desktop. Xerox were like early 80s, late 70s. That was when it that's really right. became for a person, a person could have a computer. That's right. And that's why it's called a personal computer. Yeah. You know, so so you lead quite well into it. And and then still, you know, Apple was the first one to develop a user interface, like the stuff that, you know, we don't have to deal with code. We don't have to deal with, you know, um, typing in um a string of sentences and, and code to actually talk to a computer. Because prior to that, we still have to either feed cards into big computers and when we got into personal computers it's still a lot of command line stuff yeah. you know so to to talk to the computer you still have to know what to type in what xerox and apple worked out in the 70s and 80s was a way to hide the code the operating systems that we all use today with familiar things like desktops and icons and start bars these were all invented to create a layer between us and the code this was the start of designing for people. I was just imagining, you know, like the screens with the, the green, the green exactly. code. That's, that's really what computers were then. Yeah. And then so, okay, so that, that's sort of like a transition point, right? We went from, you know, screens, black screens with just green text to like a mouse and, you know, icons for my Word documents that's and right. stuff. That's right. So is that the sort of the start of yep. people thinking, okay, a person has to use this. They need to be able to... They, they need to be able to relate to it. So you, know, you start getting the desktop, you start getting folders, like, kind of like a filing cabinet. They, yep. they started introducing all these things which we knew about yep. onto a computer. So what we call them, we call them metaphors. So, so, so at that transition point in which people, computer makers start realizing, well, we want every person, ordinary person to be able to use a computer. So for them, not everyone's going to be trained to know how to type in command line stuff. So we need something that's going to be like a veneer in front, like, like a little, uh, that the GUI that I'm talking about, the graphical interface, where, where everything is represented as either icons or, or, or things that you can click on or buttons and stuff like that, that can actually act on behalf of the person that would interact with the computer. So that more people uh, without any specialized training in, in computer science, would be able to interact with a computer. Think back to some of the icons and programs on your early computers, and some of them are even on your phone today. They all had a relationship to something real. The Word documents look like pieces of paper. The button to attach a file to an email is a paperclip. 
all of these things made computers seem familiar. But the evolution design didn't stop there. We have learned a lot through psychology, through ergonomics, uh, particularly through uh, cognitive psychology. We're understanding how people think and how people process information and, and sociology and, and all the other kind of uh, disciplines to understand how people work with things, understand, perceive, um, think about stuff. That we've come now to have a strong understanding of, well, when you're designing for people, you need to think about these certain things. So there are rules, there are heuristics, there are principles that we apply. Uh, most importantly, if what I teach is actually if, if you want to design something, you should always go and do some user research first. So don't think that just because you're a designer and, and you can, of course, rely on all these, you know, banks of knowledge that we have developed about people and understanding people. But it's always good to go out there and do some user research to understand exactly what, pe what the problem is. So it all comes back to one question. Where are people using uh, the, the particular thing that you're going to be designing? Are, are they using it themselves or using it with other people? Do they expect to collaborate with it? You know, so all that sort of stuff uh, needs to be understood. You know, in 1992, when PCs were first, or 80s, when PCs were first really getting going, you're really targeting tech-savvy people, someone who's willing to spend a lot of money on something which is not that useful. But as you know, PCs got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and used for more things, now you're getting mums and kids and whoever using it as well. So you've got, you've got a complete different set of people who you're talking to and a complete different set of uses. Does that also go, okay, now I need to think about my Word doc completely differently? Okay, so I, I think the best example will be the iPad. So when, or the, the tablet, you know, without being very Apple fanboy about things and calling it a, 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 an iPad. But seriously, when we talk about iPad, when it first released, most of the jokes around the first week of iPad was like, this is a huge iPhone. You know, people <laughs> yeah. were, were putting it against their ear and taking photographs and making fun of it. But but it has taken off. But guess which which demographics taken taken on the most uh, in terms of the iPad? It's actually the older generation, the, the elderly, okay? because they find that they don't have to interact with the OS at all. They just have to press a button and press Word, <laughs> and press mm -hmm. one button to get to do what they do. And one button gets you, rescues you, you go straight exactly. home. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so 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 the, 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 the elderly who, who kind of got bypassed with, with having to learn, you know, how to go to start button to go and select programs and all that sort of stuff, really took to it because it really appealed to them because it was so easy. But the concept of a computer has changed as well in this time. When we first started in the 70s and 80s, computers were huge things and you maybe had one of them in an office. Nowadays, most of us have a lot of computers, maybe a desktop at home, a computer at work, a phone in your pocket and a smartwatch on your wrist. How do you design in a world with so many different devices? I was studying arts. Um, was doing a bit of writing on the side, and uh, I was pretty frustrated with uh, the writing tools that were out there. I tried all of them, nothing really that appealed to me. And and this is what every writer does: they have an app on their computer, they have an app on their phone to take notes. They buy a typewriter. They, uh, I've actually done that, believe it or not. Um, and so you've got this writing process which is completely fragmented, and you you have to email stuff from here to here and. Um, so I just got frustrated with it and I thought, oh, I've, I've actually got an idea for an app for writers. Um, so I just started designing it and I didn't know how to code, didn't know how to do any of this, had never done anything like this before. Um, 
And then eventually I was like, I think this could really take off. And I was an, I was an idiot. I should have. That was a little bit too. That was a little bit too confident. Too naive. Uh, yes. How many years ago was this? When was this? I was 19. So it was about six years ago. So this is Nathan Tesla. He's the creator of a word processing app called Wordsmith. Yeah. So I just decided I'm going to do this. Um, and I dropped out and I quit my job and I started learning to code and I built it. And um, overnight it got a couple thousand downloads and... Yeah, eventually got to about 60 or so thousand and I got some investment for it and um, it started growing and I added all these extra features. I built a website for it as well and um, and now it's up to about 850,000 downloads. Wow. Um, when you talk to Nathan, it's really clear how much time he spends thinking about the people who use his apps, right down to how much money they would be willing to spend on the app. This changes everything. The type of person that's going to spend $70, say, on writing software is not the type of person who's going to spend $7 and is not the type of person who is never going to spend a cent on that yeah. kind of stuff. So you really need to design a product. And because you're not really building two products for those two different people, you're building one product for both of those people oh, or for yeah. all of those groups. So you need to design a product that appeals to all of those groups but doesn't detract from any of them. So you can't have a product that feels really cheap and simple for that pro user but you can't have a product that feels really complicated and expensive for that free user. Yeah. Um, so there's you constantly kind of straddling that line. Obviously, listening to your customers is a good idea in general. <laughs> the downside, of course, is that, uh, as Steve Jobs said, um, if you ask people what they wanted, if Henry Ford asked people what they wanted, he, they would have asked for a faster horse. Yeah. Um, and that's definitely, again, that's one of those things that you have to balance. Um, customers will often ask will give you very very good feedback um, and often you only need to hear it two or three times and you're like that's that's right you know why didn't I say that in the first place but often people will ask me for years for something and I'm like this is a terrible terrible <laughs> idea and I will never do this can you give us an example well a great one is so I I, I do a writing app right and mm. the one request that I've had from day one is can I put pictures into the app and my answer to that has always been no you'll never <laughs> be able to put pictures into this app and it's just because of the simplicity. I don't want to make this Microsoft Word. I don't want to make it Evernote. I want to make it an app for writers. Mm -hmm. And if you're the type of writer that needs a lot of visual references, great. Get Microsoft Word. Get Evernote. It's not. It's not a problem to me. Um, I'm appealing to a certain type of person, and that person doesn't use pictures. So <laughs> there's not going to be pictures in the app. It's clear that although Nathan is designing his app with people in mind, he's also designing it for a particular person how that person might want to use it. So far, he has created four different versions of Wordsmith for the iPhone, for the iPad, for the Apple Watch, and also for the web. And as he approaches each new design, he goes through the thought process that Tuck outlined earlier. He thinks about who the person is, what they are doing, where they are, and how that differs between devices. You've got to think what is first. A person uses a phone in different circumstances yeah. to they to them using a tablet. So they're not going to be, for example, they're more likely to be at home if they're using a tablet. Um, a lot of tablet use happens at night, usually in bed. Mm -hmm. So you've got to think about what is the person wanting to do uh, when they're opening up this app, which is very different on the phone because the phone, you know, people will use it when they're commuting. They'll use it. Um, when they're walking here and there. So it needs to be a completely different experience designed for a completely different use case. 
So, for example, there's a I released a Apple Watch app, and obviously you're not going to be writing on your Apple Watch. <laughs> but what I thought was a good idea was to have a button so you could dictate. So if you have an idea and you're walking down the street, rather than pull out your phone, unlock it, authenticate, um, and then you know press the plus button, start writing, just open up your watch, tap like add a new idea, and just start talking. And that's really the the that's the way you've got to approach it. Really, it's it's what's the user going to be doing, and how can I help them at that time? Um, you know, there there's a Apple TV now, and you can build Apple TVs for it, uh, t- uh, Apple TV apps. Yeah. Um, and I thought about it, and I decided that there's absolutely no reason for somebody <laughs> to write when they're on their TV. Um, so I'm not going to do it. And I think that that restraint as well is important. <laughs> Once he's thought about the context that his app will live in. Figuring out what features work and why, that's when the real job of designing what it will look like begins. It's only now that he picks up a pencil. The first step is really designing designing the app, and I do that on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll draw mock-ups for how the screens look, for different interactions, for different bits of UI. Um, and I'll always start with the phone. And the reason I start with the phone, even if I am planning to do an iPad app or, or a web version, is because the phone is constrained, and that constraint um, helps sort of limit your your thinking around it, and it helps you be more creative. Um, the same way the uh, Twitter 140 character limit does. Um, if I was designing the same thing on the iPad, like you said, um, it there's so much more space, so much more room to do things that I would start throwing buttons, and, buttons yeah. and menus, and especially on the desktop where you basically have unlimited space. Um, your page can, sc- can scroll and there's no limitations, really. You'd start putting in menus and extra features and stuff you don't need. And I think the best way to focus, even if you aren't building an iPhone app, the best way to focus is to design for the iPhone. Yeah. Um, because that really is, or for just a small a smartphone, um, that really is the best way to, to sort of target your thinking. Um, so if you're just scaling up your iPhone app to a tablet, which is a lot, what a lot of people do, uh, you're really not, you're missing out on a big opportunity, I think, to, yeah. to customize the app. The simplest thing is to show more information. So um, what I do is there are two tabs in the app, um, and on the iPhone, you can switch between them, and which means that you're focused on one thing at a time. Mm. On the iPad, you can see them all at once. And I think that's a really good experience because you have, you're usually you're going to be sitting down, you're going to, you know, you're going to sit back, kick your shoes off, get your iPad, and you get a cup of coffee, and you're going to write something, right? So it's very different. You want to see everything. You're like, what am I going to work on? And having that big space with lots of information, but but sort of neatly laid out, um, that's what you need. But on the phone, if you saw all that information, your brain would explode. (laughs) You, what you want is a really small set of things so you know exactly what to do right now. Mm. Um, so it's a very different way you have to approach the design. The reason I start with the iPhone is so that you don't get that feature bloat. But design may be on the verge of its biggest shakeup yet. Remember Tuck's friend from earlier? She's already living in a world where screens are becoming less important. As we start to use our voices to control our devices, or as things from lamps to curtains become smart and need to be controlled, what will designing for humans become? There, there, in the, over the last couple of years, there have been some really interesting movements in like 
you can put sensors on your table and knock on the table and it'll trigger something. Or Magic Leap, where you can wave your hands and your computer mm-hmm. can see it. Or And now with voice recognition, it's getting better and better. Mm-hmm. As, as these things start coming into the ecosystem, how do you think about like designing for that? Because it's no longer as screen-centric. It's now a different thing entirely. I think the future in, in that design is not to is not to basically fix or give people a fixed solution. So your, your shoe will need to talk to the door and the door then will need to talk to your phone and the phone will talk to the kettle. Okay, <laughs> So not a fixed network, but rather enable people to create the network ad hoc when they need it to, to do the stuff that they need to do. So because our routines might change or our desires might change, our goals might change. Okay, So I think that having that flexibility where people can actually make new connections mm-hmm. or recreate connections when they need it to for the particular time of their life okay, and, 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 and respect the changing nature of people's lives would be the way to go. And, and those connections are going to be capable. So we, we also need to think, so when, when you add something, when you have a new way of interacting with something, we lose something as well. I mean, what we have at the moment, we touch, 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 and swipe, 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 is that we, we have lost that physical button that we have to look at the screen to interact with it. Whereas before, we could actually type and do things with a button because we can actually feel it, right? We don't even have to look at the screen when, when we're texting someone. I, I knew of many people who text without looking at the screen. So we lose what we gain, we also lose. So we have to kind of think, well, work out what, what is best then. Mm. That, that we, the we, trade-offs. Yeah. That's right. It's always a trade-off. You've been listening to Think Digital Futures, stories from the digital age. You can subscribe to our podcast by searching for Think Digital Futures on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate us and leave a review. It really helps us get discovered. This program is a collaboration between UTS and 2SER and was produced by Jake Morecambe. I'm Josh Nicholas. Talk to you next time.